within months of Henry making himself head of the church, the view in the leadership of monasteries is, in many respects, this could be for the better. These institutions are so much a part of the uh, essential infrastructure of life. They are, they are literally embedded and built into the landscape of every locality that the idea that that landscape should be fundamentally and systematically altered is not something that they imagine. Welcome to the British History Channel with me, Philippa Lacey-Brule, and to our latest historian interview. If you've been here before, thank you for coming back and supporting my channel. And if you're new here, a very warm welcome. If you love British history, then you are definitely in the right place. If you take a look back through the channel, you'll find many more historian interviews. You'll find mini documentaries and virtual tours. You can also join me each Wednesday at one o'clock live for Tea Time History Chat Live. Now, recently, I had the pleasure of talking with James Clark. James is a professor of history at the University of Exeter, and his research concentrates on cultural and religious life in England at the end of the Middle Ages and during the Reformation. He has published widely on these themes, and his latest book, The Dissolution of the Monasteries and New History, has been published to wide acclaim. A fellow of the Royal Historical Society, James is a regular contributor on historical topics to TV, radio and new media and has written for BBC History, History Today, uh, magazines and for various outlets online. And I'm very happy that I was joined by James to pick, unpick, should I say, the surprising truth about the dissolution of the monasteries, which is quite far removed from the somewhat summarised, perhaps sanitised version that we usually hear. The interview with James is a long one, and so it has been serialised over a number of episodes, so make sure you catch them all. Now, as usual, members of my British History Patreon Club were able to submit their own questions to James, which I put to him uh, in a separate interview to the main one. Now, all patrons get to see that. They get to see it ad-free. If you join my patron, that is also you, as well as being able to have other history lover benefits like submitting questions for future guests yourself. But for now, let's talk dissolution of the monasteries the actual truth, the incredibly interesting, nuanced, surprising in parts story of one of this country's most pivotal moments. James, welcome to the British History Channel. Thank you for joining me today. I've given a bit of an introduction to you, but can you, in your own words, explain a bit about yourself, your work, what you're up to? Yes, of course. Well, first of all, thank you very much. It's it's a pleasure to join you today. Uh, I'm Professor of History at Exeter University. Um, I'm really a, a historian of the end of the Middle Ages and the um, early uh, part of what we called the early modern period in, in Britain. I have particular interest in 
cultural and religious life in England at that moment of transition uh, between what we traditionally see of as as the Middle Ages and the beginning of um, uh, significant changes and transformations in 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 life in the in the Kingdom of England um, over the course of the 16th century. And uh, I'm in fact currently working on a a new project looking at the um, the cultural transformation uh, at that time and um, the transformation of, of books uh, with um, print culture and um, uh, the emergence of a new reading public. So I've always been drawn to those um, moments of um, change, turbulence, transformation, and trying to understand what they mean for for people beyond the elite, beyond, um, in fact, beyond the people who leave the most historical records. I'm, I'm, I'm especially attracted to the challenge of trying to uncover how um, ordinary people react to these, these moments of change. Yeah, well, that's going to be very interesting and difficult by the sound of it. Yeah, yes, absolutely. <laughs> so your your book on the dissolution of the monasteries, uh, I've read it twice now, believe it or not, because it is quite large, but um, <laughs> it, it, it's fascinating. But what made you uh, want to write that book? I was particularly challenged, I think, by the way that writing on Henry VIII's Reformation had um, been emerging in the last 20 years or so. It seemed to me, and much to my surprise in a way, that the the approach to that pivotal moment that I'd known when I was going through my student history um, was somehow being being reversed, That, that as a student of history, I was being given the message um, that we need to understand the Reformation as a process from um, from ground level. Um, our Victorian ancestors had told us to see it as a um, an act of state, um, uh, something that is hammered out in the corridors of power, if you like. But we must we must break out from that perspective and understand what's happening in the. Um, cities, towns and villages of England in the parish churches and so on. But then in the last 20 years or so, it seems as if that that perspective had been more or less completely um, uh, reversed again with um, a growing narrative about how this is a high political episode, a high political drama. This is um, Henry VIII and Thomas Cromwell, Cromwell with a... um, cunning blueprint for a new kind of kingdom um, and caught in the middle of it is this personal drama between Henry and Catherine and Anne and I, I felt um, increasingly frustrated that particularly given how much popular interest there was in that in that narrative, that narrative of um, Reformation England really being about um, something that is sort of cloak and dagger down the back stairs of, of this or that royal palace. Because it, to my mind as a historian, the um, the story to be told is not endlessly revisiting the the, the drama between Henry Cromwell and, and, and Anne Boleyn. 
but actually trying to do that challenging thing of, of understanding what it means for people in um in the kingdom of of, of England um that this world was a social and cultural uh transformation and because historians had become once again preoccupied with the high politics of reformation it did seem as if that the the change that was the greatest change the most visible change for most people the the closure of institutions that had been on everyone's horizons time out of mind uh, had been edged out almost entirely um I was asked to, um, while I was working on the book, I was asked to actually review one of the um, volumes in Hilary Mantel's um, Wolf Hall series. And I was struck by the fact that we had, once again, a great deal about Henry's personal and emotional journey, um, but we had very little about church and religion at all. Um, and, and so it, it, it drove me on to, to really want to challenge that, that, yes, there's something very compelling about the these towering figures of um Tudor government and politics, Henry, Cromwell. And of course there's something very enticing about the the emotional turbulence at the heart of Henry's story. But there's another story to be told and, and that's what I was trying to do. So let's give people an idea of life before the Reformation, because <laughs> it can be quite difficult. We sort of can understand it in um, a sort of an abstract sense, but let, let's try and bring it to life a bit. So we're going to go back to basics, really, I suppose, a bit. But how and when were religious houses established in sort of England, Wales, Ireland, so in the kingdom? So religious houses are really the oldest form of church institution that there is in in Christian medieval England. Um, the Christian faith itself is, is carried into the British Isles in large part by people who lived some form of monastic life. That is that they, um, they had pledged themselves to, to God and they followed a, a, a regime of personal discipline um, uh, under this or that rule of religion. And so um, the there are some sites in in medieval England which could trace some form of of monastic custom back to that moment at the very early stages of the Saxon era that um, different regions of of England are being um, converted to Christianity. But what the what the subjects of Henry VIII would have known was was largely the inheritance of the the post conquest period the period after the coming of the normans when dozens of religious institutions are either revived from earlier saxon origins or newly created and at the heart are churches um, supported by communities of men who are living according to a variety of different um, monastic rules. So they live as a community, they follow a, a daily regime of um, that, that is highly regulated, but at the heart of it is um, a pattern of worship um, almost every hour of the day and, and through the night as well. 
um, but they also then offer different forms of sort of um, public ministry. Um, so their churches are places of worship for themselves, but for also uh, the wider neighbourhood. And by the end of the 12th century in England, uh, these institutions with churches at the heart of them have grown up right across the country, um, even into the more remote parts of the kingdom. So um, across the, the Welsh marches and into, into Wales um, and spreading out from the heartland of English Ireland right to the very edges of the, uh, of the Pale of Ireland. Um, and where there are large centres of population, so in the, the emerging um, cities of medieval England, there's a really high concentration of these institutions. They, they, there's more than one in, um, in the larger urban centres. Um, and some provincial towns are, are more or less sort of encircled by these um, monastic institutions. And then actually, as we move out of the 12th century into the 13th century, they're added to even further because um, the new orders of friars um, who are much like monks, they live according to a rule, but they have been created with the particular purpose of um, adding numbers to the available priests that are out there in, in parish communities. So they're sort of a supplementary force um, to ensure that um, there are uh, uh, ordained priests available in what is a, an expanding population across Europe. They are um, starting to be established in England in the 13th century, and they just add yet another sort of um, uh, network of, of monastic institutions into England. So by the time we get to the beginning of the 14th century, just on the, the eve of the Black Death, we've got a very large number and a very wide variety of monastic institutions um, uh, following different customs, but essentially having the same general relationship with the wider population, that at the heart of these places is a church. Uh, inside that church, the community of uh, monastics are uh, worshipping day and night, uh, but they're also using that church as a sort of community hub, if you like, a place where people come to, um, uh, to practice their religion as well, and also to receive a range of kind of uh, what we might call social services. Um, and they occupy large spaces. So we've got to imagine sites in every community where there's a constant flow, a constant traffic in, in people in and out. Um, uh, these are um, sort of cross currents of, of population as well as places of, of worship. So is it fair to, to say then that practically everybody would have had something to do with a monastery or a priory or an abbey? You know, this was touching everyone's lives. Yeah, in many respects, absolutely, yes. Um, nobody would have lived more than a few miles from one of these institutions um, throughout the Middle Ages, um, certainly from the uh, after the Norman Conquest period. Um, everybody's relationship would have, have 
been slightly different. So some people would have had a very direct relationship. Um, uh, these are substantial institutions when they're at their height with, with quite a large population. So they employ a good many people. Um, historians today tend to estimate that for every monk living in a monastery, there were probably three members of staff um, who were domestic staff, um, kitchen staff, for example, um, and working in the um, the workshops, the, the brew house, the bake house, and so on that, that were in the precinct of the monastery. So they are, some people might be employed by them. Um, some people would be making their living directly from them in that whatever trade they were in, the monastery was their main market, their main buyer, if you like, of their, of their traded goods. Um, a good many people would know the monastery as their landlord. And that's not only if you were working on the land in agriculture, but um, it's often forgotten, I think, that monasteries were major residential landlords too. So if you lived in a city or a town in medieval England, you would um, quite likely be renting your property um, from a monastic landlord. So you would know the monastery in a, in a more remote sense, but nonetheless, you were paying your rent um, to the monastery. And then many people would have... Um, family connections, so so sort of social ties to the monastery, because uh, a lot of people would know somebody in their family who had decided to um, choose to follow that life for themselves. So um, it wouldn't necessarily be that you would have a, a sibling who was, who was in a monastery, but you might have um, a cousin, an uncle, um, an ancestor, um, uh, most people in their own personal social network would have a, a direct personal link because they knew somebody who, who lived that life. And then in your daily existence, there would be moments where a monastery or a friary would be the institution that you would turn to. Now, um, for some people, that would be pretty much every few days because monasteries also opened their churches as places where um, parish services could take place. So for some people, your local parish church was, in effect, your local monastery. So if you went along to Sunday Mass, you'd actually be going into the monastery and into the monks' church. Um, for other people, if that wasn't the case, you would turn to those churches in particular at certain times of life. Um, burial um, in a monastery, and so therefore a funeral service and then burial, was um, uh, highly appealing to many people, not least because monasteries and friaries were known to be permanent institutions. No one was going to come along and develop that land. No one was going to come along and dig up their public cemetery. Uh, also, the friaries offered their cemeteries to the neighbourhood um, at a very reasonable rate. Um, so for, for people living in a crowded town, you would hope that um, when the time came, burial might be possible in the, in the Friar Cemetery. So at certain times of life, um, the attitude would certainly have been, well, only a monastery or a friary will do for this moment in my life that I've come to. 
um, even if you didn't have a day-to-day -day relationship with it. And they also held a good many uh, religious treasures, we might, we might say. Um, so monasteries, because they'd been standing in their community for many, many generations, had built up collections of saints' relics, other objects that were seen to be almost charged with a kind of religious power, um, curiosities almost, that people would have wanted to go and, and see for themselves, sometimes even to kneel beside um, at an altar and, and pray at, at challenging moments in their life. And so people, even if they didn't feel that a monastery was central to the way that they lived their life, they would probably, whether out of um, vulnerability or just pure curiosity, they would find their way towards it. I suppose the analogy for today is that a lot of people at some point in their life might wander into particularly perhaps a large cathedral. Um, and some people, even if they would say when asked, oh, I'm not at all religious, I can't remember the last time I went to church, Nonetheless, there are plenty of us who, when faced with a grand cathedral, might be tempted to pay a two-pound coin and light a candle, um, particularly if we know somebody who's recently died, for example. Um, and we may not be in a pattern of any kind of formal religious life at all, but we'll still do it. And I think we shouldn't assume that our medieval forebears were any different to us. They may not have been particularly pious. But when faced with an ancient grand building stuffed full of extraordinary things and treasures, it's very beguiling. And you mm -hmm. see colour, light, um, the, the, the gilt glint of brass candlesticks and so on. And, and the next thing you know, you're reaching into your pocket and you're paying a coin and you're lighting a candle. And that's the kind of relationship that lots of people have with monasteries. So we have something that's been around so long that there is just the idea that anything could ever change with them that they could ever go that that is it's just unthinkable i think it's unthinkable that all of them could go so medieval people are well aware of of course sudden change they in many ways they're more aware and more prepared for sudden change than than people living in 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 our own era um but these institutions are so much a part of the uh, essential infrastructure of life. They are, they are literally embedded and built into the landscape of every locality, that the idea that that landscape should be fundamentally and systematically altered is not something that they imagine. Uh, after all, many city, town, village communities had grown up physically around these sites. So uh, a typical monastery would occupy 16, 18, 20 acres in its central site. So in, in many cities and towns, these are um, unavoidable uh, parts of your, your immediate horizons. And so the streets of your community wind their way around this place. So it's 
it's not something that you would spend too much time thinking about that that the the high street through your community is suddenly going to be diverted because that place that's always been there is going to be removed no it's not something that um that people think about um they were accustomed to them changing and evolving um but that's not the same as as simply disappearing and um and i think it's fair to say that the the governing elite also don't contemplate um in any serious way their complete disappearance either because um they are part of this world just like um their subjects the people they govern and they don't um imagine that something that is is so embedded in in the fabric of life could be um simply uprooted in that way so how and when then did the idea that led to the decision to start closing the monasteries begin where's the where's the sort of seed of that well in a sense the seed of that is always there which is that because what we see under henry the 8th until really quite late on is not a plan to uproot every every monastery and and remove them efface them from the the landscape but rather um uh, an impulse to rationalize so these institutions had grown been added to um diversified over the centuries especially since the norman conquest to the point that there was not only a very large number of them more than 800 across england and wales alone but also an extraordinary variety in in scale and scope and in sustainability what today we would call sustainability so again i suppose a sort of modern analogy would be um we we see businesses large and small shops large and small uh pubs large and small restaurants large and small opening up some are much more um viable as going concerns than others and there was always in medieval england and into the tudor period there was always a straightforward awareness that um for any institution long term viability was a was a challenge and the leadership of monasteries and friaries themselves were very acutely um conscious of that challenge and there had been moments long before the coming of the tudors there had been moments when both monastic leaders and and leaders of friaries had in fact pulled the plug on institutions and said this is no longer viable there was um an effort in the 14th century to set up a series of friaries in the southwest of england where as today there was smaller population than there is in the in the southeast of england um and although there was an effort and people were prepared to provide a site and some initial uh funds to set up these places the friary authorities themselves backed away and said no this won't be viable the population here is too small to support these institutions um and i think that's 
that idea of the viability of institutions that are intended to be permanent and to continue generation after generation is something that we need to sort of bring back into focus because the um, the very um, loaded arguments of Protestant reformers, Protestant historians, has actually rather eclipsed that um, that central idea that that was um, very very important to uh, medieval and 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 early Tudor uh, people that institutions should be um, permanent. They should they should pass from one generation to another, but only if they can be self-supporting, self-sustaining. And so there had been many times when either a plan to to create an institution had just been abandoned um, because of viability, or that institutions that had always struggled and had never really gained enough um, income to support themselves and where the numbers of um, members of the institution had, had dwindled, there had been times when they had been shut down um, and not by any external um, action of the church hierarchy or the or the state, but by the institution themselves. So the reason that, for example, new uh, colleges had been established in the, the two medieval universities at Cambridge and Oxford um, in the 14th and 15th centuries was in part because monastery institutions had willingly given up a number of smaller priories um, to to create them um, because they'd realized that the funds could be better used for that than for um, supporting a, a tiny and not very effective uh, monastery institution. So the first starting point really is the notion that these institutions are only valuable if they can, if you like, stand on their own two feet, if they, if they really can make a difference in their community and they don't become a burden to, to that community. Um, and so the starting point really is um, a view, particularly when Henry makes himself head of the church in 1534, that this process of rationalization must be more uh, coherent and, and systematic. So the starting point for the dissolution is not a total dissolution. It is a, a if you like, trimming away at the edges. Um, so, and this is what really, I think, challenges the, the traditional view that we're all told that <clears throat> Henry VIII dissolves monasteries because he has his eye on the, on the prize, if you like. Um, on the the very wealthy monasteries that uh, whose money he he covers, uh, actually the starting point is almost the complete inverse of that. The starting point is he has an eye on the poorest. He has an eye on those that are no longer viable, that are absolutely on their knees. The leading monasteries should become almost like a sort of. Um, English version of the uh, of the Habsburgs Escorial, you know, a, a, a sort of um, palace monastery, um, a great palatial church institution that sort of reflects glory back towards the king. 
that's clearly his plan right the way through almost to the end of the decade and it's really only after the the shock to everyone of the uprising the rebellion that we know of as the pilgrimage of grace in uh in 1536 um that perhaps there is an awareness that um the this new relationship with the crown is volatile um and that the the future direction of that relationship is now much more uncertain 